milk in the batter, milk in the batter. We bake cake and nothing's the matter. And I'll eat you up. The wild things roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. The king of all wild things was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. I'll be home one day and my brave, bright little Ida must watch the baby and her mama for her papa who loves her always. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. Anyone who knows me will tell you that I love books. Some would say even to a fault. Books are like vines in my house. They don't really stay on the shelves. They grow and spread, taking over tables, forming into piles, and becoming obstacles for my tiny dog, who has to weave through a labyrinth before jumping up onto my lap to sit with me while I, you know, read and drink coffee. My books are beloved treasures. Looking at them, they tell layered stories. There's the words on the page, but there's also the story of my experience with them. Notes in the margins, scribbled bits of conversation with authors, dog-eared pages, creased spines, tattered paperbacks. I handle my books. Reading is emotional and intellectual. It's also tactile. In my relationships with books, they're long-lasting. Authors become constant companions. It's like I can't return to who or where I was before reading them. They stick with me, and they transport me, not just in the moment, but long after. But sometimes the years pass, and the volume of these voices, it gets turned down. Sometimes it fades into the background. It's there, but it goes relatively unnoticed. But then I'll buy a book for a friend, I'll buy a book for a newborn child, and the volume is dialed up on these old companions. Time and again, I found myself in bookstores, awkwardly sitting on a stool, revisiting picture books from my youth. I hone in on what, for me, were staples of nighttime reading in my own childhood. And sometimes I'm asked, why is this book important to you? And when people ask that question, I'm stunned into silence. There's a feeling but I can't always find the words. Among these few cherished books from my childhood is Where the Wild Things Are by Maury Sendak. I couldn't tell you where I was when it was first read to me, but that doesn't dilute its impression. The book is a feeling more than it is a memory. It's a feeling of warmth and of suspense. It's something naughty. It's unforgettable. Even now, all these decades later, It evokes a visceral response in me. The book grants permission to swing from vines and have a romp and live in the space of crashing waves of emotion 
emotion that blends into a sea of competing impulses and desires. Words on the page, pictures, pictures of a child in a wolf suit, these simple things, even in a garden of books, a garden of literature on my shelves, this skinny volume, it beckons me to move from one location to another. So much of Sendak's writing is about movement, or better yet, location. Where the wild things are. Outside, over there, in the night kitchen, in the dumps, on Rosie's door. These books remind the reader that there are places where we are now, where we came from, where we're going, how we're pushed and pulled back and forth, and told where to be. Yet sometimes we travel and we find an island that is home. Other times, we long to return. Not always are we allowed to be where we want. So I have these impressions, these impressions of Sendak and where the wild things are, and these books from my childhood, and I wanted to find words for them. This is where Golan Moskowitz comes in. Golan has researched and written about Sendak. He's found the words that feel so elusive to me. He also has ways of reading Sendak that layer and expand and recenter what I see when reading Sendak. Golan brings queer, Jewish, and trauma-informed lenses to Sendak's work. Reading Golan's book, Wild Visionary, I engaged with a text that is part history, literary analysis, and at also times felt like a deep dive into psychology and philosophy. Let me read just a few sentences from the introduction to Golan's book so you can get a feel for what I mean. Here's what Golan writes. Sendak came of age as a romantic nonconformist in an age of mechanical reason and restraint. The Sendak child battled dangers of entrapment, suppression, boredom and insignificance, and sang songs of wild triumph, of sensual awakenings and powers tasted for the first time. Sendak carved a markedly solitary path, insisting on a vision of himself as an ethnically other, atheist, old-world Jew. Golan also observes that Sendak's writing is irreverent Yiddishkeit. These excerpts from Golan's book, well, they're the very, very short list of sentences that I underlined and circled, and that I've been returning to in recent days while reading and rereading passages from this book. So let's turn and listen to Golan. Let's learn from him about childhood, conformity, assimilation, and tensions of being an insider and an outsider. Let's listen to Golan and learn about the ambivalence of feeling connected to but also alienated from old-world Jewish culture. Yella, let's learn together. And now, at the Wild Wombus Stout. My name is Golan Moskowitz, and I'm an assistant professor of Jewish studies at Tulane University in New Orleans. I consider myself a cultural historian and a literary scholar, and I also come from a visual arts background. And I study questions of intergenerational trauma, post-Holocaust, family studies, including in the realm of literature, art, and culture. Sendak is a great example of someone who has 
attracted a lot of attention in the mainstream and in highbrow circles in terms of the world of art and culture, but someone who also is doing something that is coming from the margins and something very interesting that's coming from the margins and specifically from a place marked by intergenerational trauma, the experiences of a Jewish immigrant family in America, uh, specifically a lower middle class family in Brooklyn. Someone also who for a long time operated from a position of a kind of covert queerness as a gay man in the 20th century, which saw, of course, the AIDS crisis, the emergence of the gay liberation movement, uh, but not until Sendak's middle age. And he often felt ill at ease to talk about his personal life and his partner of 50 years, Eugene Glynn, in the public sphere, partially knowing that the public was uncomfortable with those kinds of conversations and associating a children's artist with matters of sexuality or, or queerness. Sendak's work speaks from a position that's marginal from multiple perspectives and someone whose differences in terms of his own embodied difference and his uh, experience more collectively as a member of a particular Jewish community marked by the Holocaust, marked by immigration, interacted in really interesting ways to, to express a particular creative vision from the margins and in ways that spoke to something universal. Can you speak to how it is that somebody from the margins with that background that you just shared managed to resonate in the mainstream? What is it about his work that perhaps allowed for him to garner the attention of such an extensive audience. Sendak was really drawing from classic fairy tales, classic illustrators from Europe, and he was also integrating elements of pop culture. One of the styles that he referred to, he had multiple styles that he worked from visually, was his, his sort of flat or fat style, as he called it, which involved thick, dark lines and broad, monochromatic uh, areas of color, using panels and speech balloons like a popular comic book. He was drawing from elements uh, that were exciting in pop culture and merging them with more classical uh, fairy tale and, and other European classical aesthetics and creating a kind of hybrid contemporary fairy tale of his own life in the context of 20th century and early 21st century culture that draws from these different elements of tradition and contemporary life and merges them to create something new. On the other hand, his experience is speaking to the universal queerness of childhood itself. Golan talks about the universal queerness of childhood, but what exactly does he mean by that? I think that uh, something that was really important about what he did was that he defied the idea that all children are sweet, angelic, and the same, and that children are, are young human beings with their own complex, serious, sometimes dark, fun, flamboyant, energetic, and wild energies, and that should be celebrated and explored and, and expressed in ways that help children to see themselves reflected in literature, in culture. And I think that that's something that challenged mainstream depictions of childhood at the time, which often operated in ways that spoke down to children, that worked to instruct children in a particular direction toward assimilation in adult norms within the adult-dominated society. So Sendak spoke more directly to what it felt like to be a child on an emotional level, and that's something that both children appreciated and something that adults were touched by, I think, being able to recognize glimpses of how childhood had felt for them and perhaps what was lost in the process of socialization. The very ideas that he's playing with, exposing, as you said, the queerness of childhood, could be alienating to adults who are deeply invested in perpetuating some of the 
the myths about the sweetness of childhood or some of the Pollyanna ways of thinking about childhood and the sorts of stories that young people should be exposed to. You talked about the queerness of childhood, and then you also used the term wild. That is a, a word that is quite central in how it is that he's thought of. So would you mind articulating what it means to talk about the queerness of childhood or just what the term queer means in the way you're employing it? And then also, what does wild or wildness mean? So when I use queerness in in my study, I'm thinking not just about the way we sometimes more obviously think of queerness in terms of uh, non-normative expressions or identifications with regard to gender or sexuality. I'm also thinking about queerness in a broader sense of a position of challenging, of problematizing. And also uh, Sendak has been described as queer by others not only for having been a gay man, but also because he was irascible, because he was a, a kind of, you know, in some ways, a difficult and cantankerous personality, but also someone with, with a, a highly satirical sense and a dark sense of humor. So someone who made his close friends laugh with his, his ability to cuttingly see through facades and call out hypocrisy and reveal underlying meanings. Uh, he was constantly working against what he perceived as the kind of callousness of mainstream culture, the puritanism, the capitalist greed. So these were somewhat queer stances to take with regard to the mainstream. And of course, there's also his position as a gay man and as someone who growing up was called a sissy by his peers. He was often sick in his younger years. He spent a lot of time indoors when he was a sickly child. So he was queered in several respects. Um, this in some ways, I think, translates to a, an embodied sense of queerness where his social role as it kind of developed growing up was a kind of dramatic storyteller who would entertain others similar to the child that he would later sketch and become his muse rosie who was a young sicilian child who entertained her less inspired peers who were bored on their urban block in brooklyn by creating fantasies for them so this was one way that we can understand sendai's position of queerness he was aware of his same-sex desires uh, as early as the years preparing for his bar mitzvah. He had a crush on his uh, male Hebrew teacher, who was a Polish uh, immigrant himself, and you know, became more fully aware of his same-sex desires in his teenage years, and eventually partnering with Eugene Glynn, another gay Jewish man, for over 50 years together. So that's, that's sort of how I'm thinking about queerness as problematizing in general and also at, and subversive in general toward mainstream assumptions, but also specifically located within his experience of gender and sexuality as a gay man living before Stonewall and we're coming into himself before the era of Stonewall and gay liberation. You know, in some ways there's overlap between queerness or wildness or there can be, but wildness also extends beyond his own personal experience of self as a queer person into uh, his experience as a son of immigrants, as a child of immigrants who are sort of in real time during his upbringing being acculturated or experiencing pressures to acculturate Children in the public school system were often made highly aware of the difference of their parents or caretakers. As these children learned how to speak English the way that they were expected to speak it, they were made to feel ashamed of their own parents' Yiddish and Yiddish-inflected English. The kind of intergenerational tensions and separations that occurred around that experience of difference, where parents or caretakers or relatives are made to seem like wild things, made to seem like unseemly beings in America within an acculturating family. 
So wildness extends beyond the wildness of being different from a gendered or embodied perspective with regard to gender and sexuality to also include ethnic, cultural experiences of difference. And then I'll add one more element to wildness, which is you know, Sendak deeply believed in the necessity to to follow one's most urgent feelings, uh, even when their destinations were not clear. And that's sort of how he worked. He followed these urgent feelings that he carried with him from early childhood, which he felt he needed to sort of uh, work through in his in his creative work. And sometimes, especially for subjects who are sidelined, who are marginalized, who are prevented from becoming who they are or allowed to become who they are within certain cultural constraints, the best one can do is follow one's most pressing feelings, which might lead one toward where one is meant to be or one hopes to be in order to actualize these sort of unclear signals that come from deep-seated emotions, that this can be a kind of wildness in and of itself to kind of passionately uh, indulge one's most pressing feelings, which is what Sendak believed children do in the realm of fantasy, their ability to slip between fantasy and reality as a kind of survival mechanism, as a way to uh, interact with a world that they did not fully understand, that children do not fully understand, to grapple with a set of systems that sometimes exist beyond their own reach or comprehension through what might be perceived as the wildness of following one's emotional intuition. If there's a queerness and a wildness and a subversiveness to what it is that Sendak was doing in his work, what does it mean when that work becomes part of the mainstream and becomes normalized to the point where it is almost part of a canon that multiple generations are exposed to over the course of decades. Does that in turn have any kind of domesticating effect on his message and how it is that it's disseminated and received? Or does it mean that there's a willingness to embrace that subversive dissenting streak in his work? Is that radical or wild nature preserved over time? I'd like to say that the work sort of speaks for itself and that it continues to to offer messages that are very in tuned with how a child might, or, or someone who's aligned with their kind of inner child energies might grapple with or interact with difference and experiences of otherness. Um, I think that maybe on a more superficial level, which of course also matters, there are some potential blind spots or areas that might not speak as directly to contemporary uh, issues of focus. Uh, for example, there's a few texts that include and, and involve children of greater ethnic or racial difference in terms of social disenfranchisement. Specifically, I'm thinking of um, We're All in the Dumps with Jack and Guy, in which there's you know, potential to read this as a white savior narrative in which Jack and Guy, these white, potentially ethnically marginal white boy protagonists rescue a dark-skinned, bruised child uh, and adopt the child essentially as their own. So there's sort of a queer family that emerges there. But Sendak really worked from his own search for self. That search for self was daring and it entered territory that others wouldn't dare to enter in ways that I still think shock and shake up uh, certain librarians, certain families, certain parents. For example, depictions of of male frontal nudity of Mickey and in the night kitchen and depictions of more defiant behavior that children enact against their parents, uh, et cetera, use of, of maybe sometimes more violent or aggressive imagery or language. Childhood has become a more expansive place and we're in the era in which 
you know, we've seen a lot of progress. We're not fully there yet, but we've seen a lot of progress with regard to understanding and empowering experiences of difference, even within childhood. I'm thinking about what it's like to be a trans identifying child today, for example, compared to what it must have been like uh, in the era that Sendak was sort of in his prime. But on the other hand, I think that we still have in children's publishing and in children's book culture uh, aspects that Sendak would see as highly regressive, lapsing into commercialism and a prioritization of sales and the, the kind of exciting energies that Sendak felt a part of in the, the 50s, 60s uh, and 70s, he really sees a decline by the 70s and 80s uh, in terms of the willingness or the ability for the welcoming quality for children's picture books to do those deep dives into the psyche and to, to allow the artist to be boundless in their exploration. Now there's sort of a domestication in the way that books are packaged and designed and imagined uh, in ways that often play it safe around issues of political correctness which sometimes gets used as a sort of cudgel to keep particular people uh, in check or particular perspectives in check. He also illustrated some of the works of other authors. I'm thinking about Ivy Singer's writings in particular. Do we see the wild or subversive nature of some of his work playing out in the illustrations that he made for the writings of, of other authors? Sendak definitely differentiated between work that was completely his own versus illustrations for others. He became increasingly more selective and less willing to uh, illustrate for others, and, and except for particular circumstances. Ivy Singer was, of course, 1966, he does Lata the Goat with him. And that it was a project that was really dear to his heart. And the way that he thought about illustration was similar to a comic book in which the pictures don't simply repeat what the text says. They advance the text and there's an interplay between text and image. Sometimes the illustrator is finding new meanings that the author might not have necessarily seen or even intended, but there's an interpretive act that's involved in illustration. He saw this as a kind of intermediary act that involved his own excavation of meaning within the text. One particular way that he went about this for Zlata, the Goat, uh, the Ivy Singer collection, was to integrate images of relatives of his from both sides of his family. His mother and father had relatives who uh, were killed during the Holocaust. And he worked from photographs that were displayed around his, his home during the time of the Holocaust when these people were lost. His home felt sometimes like a place of mourning. So Zlata the Goat was a way that Sendak brought back to life and immortalized some of the, the relatives from his family. And he sat with his uh, parents and actually they cried together over the pictures that he had done for Singer and the way he immortalized them. And in terms of the, um, the actual artwork itself, these are beautifully rendered drawings that have a kind of fine line quality and cross-hatching that uh, I describe as, as sort of fading at the seams. It's a very kind of gentle, almost like a threadbare fabric kind of look to them. And you know, in addition to bringing his family's murdered relatives back to life, they also made Yiddish cultural images uh, more accessible to the mainstream as Sendak had already begun to build his name as an illustrator. This is after Where the Wild Things Are. And in some ways, he, he's allowing Singer's words to be amplified on, on a different level by visualizing them in this very carefully, beautifully rendered way. Was his Jewish background and identity incidental to his work as a creative? Or did he bring it into his original text as well? Would one discern that he's dealing with the trauma of the Holocaust or questions of living in a, a Jewish immigrant family? Or is there more of a universal element 
that isn't so overtly or explicitly grounded in the difference that was due to his Jewish identity. His Jewishness and his Jewish difference were sort of built into his aesthetic and his his sensibility. He would sometimes describe the child protagonist that he depicted using Yiddish language, describing some of the female characters as Yenta-like characters uh, with a lot of energy and sometimes more domineering or very confident personalities. And the male children sometimes he described as more Shlemiel-like, Vassar Diker Gornish type kind of uh, more wispy type characters. So he, he definitely drew on the kind of gender queering traditions that have now been written about and parodied in Yiddish literature. But he also depicted classical works that kind of departed from those ideals and models. So you know he, he did a collection of grim fairy tale illustrations with Laura Siegel, who was herself a survivor, I believe, of the Holocaust. You know, he went directly to Germany to do visual research for these and was drawing on models beyond those of the typical Yiddish-infused Jewish sensibilities. In, in terms of his Jewishness beyond these texts, he also illustrated a book that was technically by his father, Philip Sendak, which was a collection of Philip's recollections and stories from growing up in Poland. And these included some darker tales that were more characteristic of the kinds of stories Yiddish literature sometimes offered to children in the interwar era. Stories about parent-child separation, political dangers, and Sendak brought a, a similar aesthetic to Slots of the Goat, but using pencil, and he depicts situations of terror in which children are fighting for their lives as they move across this landscape, but also infused the illustrations with Yiddish language, storefront shops, uh, selling challah, for example. I think that some of his work offers a sensibility that comes from Yiddish-speaking culture. Some of it is perhaps more related to being an American of his generation, of being someone who grew up in the 30s in an era where we see a greater democracy of interplay between what's considered highbrow and lowbrow art, uh, with the mainstream emergence of comic books and the golden era of Hollywood. So this kind of piecing together of, of iconic imagery and sensation, which is itself in some ways, um, you know, questions about the inherent Jewishness or not of mainstream American popular culture in the interwar era is, I think, a relevant part of the conversation. Many of those who were creating the films of the golden era of Hollywood uh, were themselves American Jews who were kind of creating beauty and spectacle and mirrors of realities, of, of emotional realities in ways that could speak to the mainstream, but also draw from particular rooted experiences within Jewish history. So if we're to look at Sendak's picture books, what's an example where we can see a melding, where we can see an interplay between queerness, trauma, and Jewishness? How does all of this come together on the page? I think Outside Over There is an interesting text when thinking about Sendak's queerness and his kind of trauma-informed experience growing up and the ways in which he brings those experiences via the most pressing emotions that drive him as an artist into his work. It's, it's a work that he describes as creating a kind of breakdown because it, it, it takes him to such a difficult place. It's a story about a young child, Ida, and she's made to care for her infant baby sister who is snatched away by goblins while Ida is busy playing the horn, busy creating music. And, and goblins come in in that moment into the home and snatch the infant baby sister away. Uh, and they replace her with a changeling ice baby, a kind of frozen fake child. And Ida is then compelled to pursue the goblins and to find her lost infant sister. 
And she does so in a really interesting way by traveling backwards through the air into outside over there. Eventually, she finds her sister in a cave where the goblins have hidden her, essentially, and are preparing to turn her baby sister into a nasty goblin bride. Ida is eventually able, through playing her horn, the very act that led to the loss of her sister in the first place, she causes all of the goblins to dance in a frenzy, and they all dissolve. And the only remaining figure is her baby sister in a, in a cracked eggshell. And that's how she rescues her and brings her back home. But even when she's brought back home, we see that father has not returned. Mother is still despondent. Father is a sailor away at sea. And he has sent a letter to Ida's mother that Ida should continue to help take care of mother and her baby sister. So again, there's this sense of the child being kind of left to grapple with sometimes mature realities with adults who are not always able to function in ways that are needed by the child to fully understand the child's predicament. Yet there's a sense that this young child has been rescued and restored and the ice baby has been replaced with the actual living baby. I bring this one up in part because Sendak identified with that ice baby. He sometimes referred to himself in writings as the ice baby. He wrote, I was the ice baby. I, I study this connection in relation to a couple of different ideas. Uh, on the one hand, I, it relates to my reading of trauma in his work in the sense that to be displaced by ruptures, the unprecedented ruptures that are happening within one's own family life, as Sendak grew up, he was his parents would physically collapse and fight as they learned about what was happening in Europe to their relatives during the Holocaust. And Sendak also was reminded by his mother if he was misbehaving as a young adolescent that his cousins were in concentration camps and that they were not given food. So there's a sense of being kind of displaced from one's own life, from one's own ability to live as a child uh, in the way that dominant American culture thought about childhood, yet also very important and pressing ones that were important to engage with and to not forget. Sendak remained, in his own words, obsessed with the Holocaust throughout his work, especially in his later years. He, he came to really more explicitly work on the Holocaust in his picture books. And outside over there, he's dealing with the displacement that's involved growing up in a post-traumatic family, being displaced like that ice baby who's frozen in time and stolen away. And on the other hand, he's also talking about what it means to be a queer child who grows sideways. When normative pathways for growing upward, so to speak, or for advancing in normative pathways in one's life are not available without changing who you are, without becoming a different person in a world that requires a particular way of being, right? Heteronormative whiteness, for example. Queer children sometimes grow sideways. They grow outward or laterally. They expand themselves and grow in directions that are sometimes off the map, sometimes in areas that we might perceive as wild or as animal or as creatively innovative. And this is something that I think is happening in Outside Over There, where this child is frozen in time, is, is turned into an ice baby. I mean, interestingly enough, it's a female child that Sendak identifies with. So there, again, there's this sort of transgendering or queering of himself. And Ida, who could be another component of Sendak's self, could be an imagined dream daughter, saves this displaced child by moving backwards through the night, moving backwards to the site of conception, to this very metaphoric space inside a cave, inside an eggshell, to kind of reroute and rechart this person's life, this young uh, infant sister's life. So there's complex temporality involved here that is, is sometimes 
a characteristic of dealing with time that has been ruptured, and this speaks also to the idea of queerly growing sideways in new directions in order to advance and actualize and become uh, a full person in a world that only allows that for particular ways of being, perhaps especially white, cisgender, heteronormative ways of being. Many writers and survivors referred to Holocaust Europe as over there. That was a phrase that was used, there, or over there. So this idea that this is happening in the space of over there, outside over there, uh, adds this other layer of meaning here in terms of this place that this child must go or must be engaged with or attached to or implicated by in order to work through the obstacles uh, of their own actualization of being frozen or displaced or made into a changeling within one's own life. Sendak writes to himself a note to draw the sunset as a Fire Island sunset. Sendak had a pretty close relationship with Fire Islands. He didn't generally stay in the Pines or Cherry Grove, which are historically more known as the spaces of gay celebration. There's a kind of relationship also with existing covertly as a gay person, as a queer person, in a time in which that itself is associated with being off the map or subversive or displaced from one's own life in terms of what normative adult society considered to be a growing up or progress. Sendak's work is showing the kind of universal pain of what it means to be a young person, to be a person in general who wants to grow up and is unmoored or, or thrown off the tracks uh, because of particular embodied larger forces at work that are beyond one's control. As we see shifts in the ways in which members of the queer community participated in social movements and civic activism, did we also see any kind of shifts in terms of how Sendak spoke about himself, spoke about his work, or did we actually see any kind of noticeable change in how he addressed these issues about queerness, difference in his creative work? You know, I think one of the most exciting moments to imagine when looking back on Sendak's life is the moment of creating In the Night Kitchen in his Greenwich Village studio, just a block or two away from the Stonewall Inn itself. And Sendak was not a political activist at the time or part of the gay liberation movement in a more active way. He knew the dangers of doing something like that as a children's artists at the time and the prejudices that existed, the associations between gay people and pedophilia, for example, were pretty rampant. But he was working on In the Night Kitchen while the Stonewall riots erupted. He was also taking care of his ailing father who had moved into his studio uh, after the death of Sendak's mother, Sadie. So he was living with his father in the small Greenwich Village studio and working in the night kitchen, which, of course, is a story about a boy who wakes up because there's thumping in the night, which we might infer as relating to his parents in their own bed. He falls through the night past his parents' bed into the night kitchen and experiences his own sensual awakening and fantasy swimming through the dough of this batter, uh, this cake that's being created by these bakers who look a bit like Oliver Hardy and a bit like Hitler with their Hitler mustaches, especially as they put him into the oven to bake this cake. Again, this kind of wavering of, of darker realities and lighthearted pop culture uh, in this dream. And the child is naked. It's fascinating to me that he created this book, which is so often described as um, fantasy about sensual awakening between this boy and these men at night uh, in this kitchen. It's about being a young person who comes 
into some sort of carnal or personal uh, embodied awareness of self, a personal awakening as a human being, as an artist who exists in the world, uh, who has a particular drive or power in the world. Eventually, Mickey reshapes the dough of the batter into an airplane and into an outfit that he wears and flies to the top of the page panels and takes charge of the narrative. He becomes the distributor of the milk from the skyscraper-sized bottle of milk in the night kitchen and comes to be the person who oversees the baking of cake each morning. And he's thanked at the end of the story. The reason we have cake each morning is thanks to Mickey. And it's fascinating to me that he wrote and created the artwork for the story in the pangs of the tonal rise and the beginning of the gay liberation movement. There's been suggestions of this as a book that is particularly eyebrow raising because of its uh, handling of male sexuality and potentially um, homoerotic depictions. In the Night Kitchen is liberating. It's fun and upbeat. Like Golan said, it was written down the street from the Stonewall Inn. There's a confluence here of rejecting normative expectations. There's basking in being who you are and experiencing power in that. But like Jewish history and the way Sendak dealt with the joy and trauma of Jewish life, the story of being queer in the 20th century also meant dealing with the trauma of profound loss. The AIDS crisis would find its way into Sendak's life and in turn his picture books. When we get to the era of the AIDS crisis, when Sendak is actually losing friends, loved ones, students, colleagues to the virus, he takes a, a much more politically transparent stance and he becomes more vocal about it. Art Spiegelman, who created Mouse, wrote that he believed that Sendak was possibly on the verge of coming out to the public at this time, that he seemed so compelled by his feelings about AIDS and his outrage at a government and a society that was apathetic. Sendak's project, We're All in the Dumps with Jack and Guy, depicts a dystopian urban landscape, uh, which includes a really kind of prophetic reference to Trump. There's a Trump Tower, it's called, and these homeless children are littered in the streets wearing bits and scraps of newspapers as clothing. And the, the newspaper includes headlines about AIDS, about homelessness, joblessness, and even a reference or two to personal losses that Sendak experienced in the era. So one newspaper has the date of James Marshall's burial, uh, and, and it says Jim goes home. And James or Jim Marshall was one of his closest friends in the picture book world. He died of AIDS-related causes. So Sendak took a starker, more transparent stance toward the AIDS crisis, and, and also in those works aligned his feelings about the Holocaust with the AIDS crisis. There's a scene in which the children, Jack and Guy, go on to save a dark-skinned child. They're carried up into the air by this moon who's supposed to symbolize Sendak's immigrant mother who was constantly looking out her apartment window from, from up high to make sure her children were safe on the block. This moon grabs Jack and Guy and brings them to an orphanage where they save this child, but the orphanage also has a smokestack, which feels very uh, related to other Holocaust imagery that Sendak includes elsewhere. In interviews, he said things along the lines of, I lived through a second kind of Holocaust at the end of this terrible 20th century, experiencing the AIDS crisis, losing so many loved ones uh, so senselessly. That being said, he never really became a very vocal political activist. His work itself, I think, was political. That was the best way he knew how and the way he felt most comfortable, making work that really got at the humanity of the childness or the childlike aspects of what it meant to be a person who was abandoned in some ways or not included. 
rooted in the protections of the society in which they lived, lacking access to those protections as a child might lack access to understanding or credibility in, in a culture. So through the symbolic use of childhood, Sendak was able to convey some of these more angry political feelings and some of the vulnerability that he experienced as well or felt as well. He donated a lot of money, actually, to the GMHC, the Gay Men's Health Clinic. He also painted a mural for their um, children's room, which was for children who were HIV positive or children of families who were HIV positive. And so he painted a Wild Things mural in that room. With all this in mind, thinking about Sendak's vision of childhood, the way he melded queer and Jewish culture, queer and Jewish love, and even trauma into his picture books, How can we return to these books, return to them with the feelings that we once had for them, but also with new insights? I think Sendak would probably want any reader to kind of respond authentically and intuitively to the work. But I think that I would say, you know, coming from the more scholarly perspective that I brought to study of Sendak's life and work, when you look at a Sendak book or any sort of Sendak creation, think about the fact that young people know and feel more than we tend to think they do. Sendak really wanted to work against this notion of a kind of blanket child innocence or child ignorance, that children are not only more complex and serious than we might expect them to be, but that childhood is not necessarily something that we grow out of, that it's something that can be a lasting wellspring of what makes us human, especially in those places in which we grapple with the before or the beyond of social normalcy, of the kind of rote routines of our everyday life. And, and the ways in which we use fantasy to, to explore our deepest feelings and to move forward through those feelings. So I think thinking about the inner child as a sort of queer, creative, pre-social insider-outsider who both belongs and exists in our mainstream, broader contexts of everyday life and someone who also is outside of dominant social norms and finding the beauty and power of what it might mean to exist outside of social norms. In some ways, I think this speaks to a lot of what the richness of Jewish literature tradition, history, theology has offered this question of what it means to be outside, sometimes inside as well at the same time in any given context or culture. But in terms of at least uh, diasporic Judaism, Jewish life and tradition, I think Sendak speaks to a similar non-traditional relationship to the larger narrative of Jewish American history, which is a, a history that's often painted as acculturating or assimilating through the public school system and suburbanization after World War II. Sendax is one of grappling with the marginal spaces in his society, living in a family through the Depression and and Holocaust losses experienced uh, from afar, moving to Manhattan and Greenwich Village in the midst of the social liberation movements as they emerge, becoming part of children's literature at a time in which psychoanalysis was popularized uh, and the idea of diving into the psyche and understanding what makes us who we are was seen as an imperative and an asset. I think in some ways, this kind of insider-outsider, marginal yet universal world that Sendak offers us, which also draws on great literary and artistic precedents and merges them with the matter of everyday life, Mickey Mouse, comic books, etc., challenges us to ask ourselves where we've grown complacent, where we belong, where we don't belong, and how we might address others who are continuing to exist on the fringes of belonging and of actualization in, in our lives. When I think about Sendak, location comes to mind. There's what's over there, or what's on an island. There's also what's inside all of us. Whether we see ourselves on the page in the Yiddishkeit, 
or the queer celebrations, or in dealing with the inattentive parents, there's something of Sendak that draws out what's inside of us, and in turn, something from these books that we gobble up and devour, making a part of us. Our inner lives exist outside of us, on Sendak's pages. His pages soothe, yet also somehow upend and change the fabric of our inner world. My pile of Sendak books, it's calling for me again. I think I'm going to go eat them up. A special thanks to Golan Moskowitz. It was a real treat talking to you. Golan's book, Wild Visionary, Maurice Sendak in Queer Jewish Context, is published by Stanford University Press. And thanks to my sister Erica and her kiddos, Eliza and Raiden, for reading and recording passages from Sendak's books, Where the Wild Things Are, Outside Over There, and In the Night Kitchen. Thanks always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy in Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Cutson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. Our episodes feature music from the Boston-based Sephardic band Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music's on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available for creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy in Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visit our website, joyinconversationpodcast.com. Bashu Fakum. We'll see you next time.